Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I am doing okay. It is early. It is uh, Wednesday here, Tuesday for you. So hopefully uh, nothing dramatic happens over the next few days before we release this. But uh, I'm doing well for a Wednesday. How are you? Yeah, good good for a Tuesday. Thank you very much. Daylight savings kicked in. I'm enjoying the extra hour of sunlight. Yeah. Oh, great. Now we're going to get people complaining about daylight savings. to us. <laughs> I just find the whole like oh like it, it's an hour. I mean, I mean, chill out. It, the <laughs> sorry, no, we're definitely getting email. Yeah. Everyone likes to complain, and no one likes to actually point out what the alternative should be. So, do you actually really want an hour less of sunlight during the during during the summer, or alternatively, do you actually want it to be pitch black when you go to work in the winter? I mean, think through this, people. I mean, there there is there is it's not just like a random okay, it's kind of a random introduction to savings time, but there is like it's very easy to say, oh, this is terrible the worst thing ever ban it and then not actually think through well would you actually be happy about that it sounds like you're a uh you're a supporter i i am a supporter i so i live uh, there is no daily savings time here in type a and believe me for me daily savings time is a far greater pain in the rear end than it is for anyone else because i have to schedule calls constantly with people in the united states where they change and i don't and oh my daily update schedule is driven by the u.s times which it, but I, I i'm here in taiwan so it is actually an unbelievable pain there end for me uh that said i think it's great i wish they had it here like I, I i love it being bright at night i think it's great and to the extent that we can have more of it the better i i appreciate the principled stance well, thank you. No email, please. Uh, <laughs> our thanks to WordPress.com. I just started a WordPress.com blog in support of Daylight Savings Time. Uh, we're excited, mm. though, to have WordPress.com as a sponsor. Whether you'd like to build a personal blog, a business site, or both, creating a website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience. They guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you get the most from your site, and they're available 24 by 7. Uh, do, do, so the 24 by 7 thing is weird. Is that how you say it in Australia? Uh, yeah, 24 by 7. See, we, we just say 24 7. The, uh. the buy is, the buy it kind of throws me off every week, I have to admit. <laughs> but plans start at just $4 per month, and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan. So go to WordPress.com slash exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's WordPress.com slash exponent. Our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. I really can't not pay attention during your ad read anymore. It's, I know, I know. <laughs> I kind of mixed it up this time too. I didn't quiz you so much as uh, I did quiz you, but I quizzed you about your own your own interjections. Well, there was just silence. I was like, oh, I think I meant to say this. No, that's right. That is true. I, I, I did a double whammy. So this week I wrote about something a little bit different uh, than than perhaps we, we were used to talking about. But what happened was a little bit different and frankly quite rare. And that was that President Trump preemptively barred Broadcom from acquiring Qualcomm. So just to back up a little bit, Broadcom, people might be familiar with that name. It's a company that's been around for a long time, a U.S. company. But that U.S. company was acquired by a company called Avago, a Singaporean company, uh, and they took on the name Broadcom a couple of years ago. It actually wasn't wasn't that long ago. And there's been this sort of ongoing trend of consolidation in the chip industry generally, particularly as you know the, the we've talked previously about the separation mm. between the sort of manufacturing where where Samsung and TSMC and uh, Global Foundries, and then the sort of design on the other side. It, it, it's a classic example of sort of where modularity has really 
really sort of taken the cake here. And what's interesting is it used to be thought that the sort of all the value was in the sort of design and then the manufacturing was sort of, the you know, that would that was all commoditized. And it's kind of flipped over time where the size of the chips has become so small and the cost of manufacturing has become so high that th- that there's only a couple huge players there. And and there is increasingly benefit if you're a designer to to be larger, to bulk up, not just because of a price issue, but literally that you can just get space at the foundry issue. I mean, the the um, uh, th- there's only so many folks that can make this stuff. And the bigger you are, the better deal you can drive with them on one side, on the, on the sort of manufacturing side. And then also on the folks that are actually buying your chips, whether it be the Apples or the mm-hmm. or the other smartphone companies that, that are buying buying chips from you. So there's been this ongoing trend of consolidation in, in, the, in the chip industry generally. And that, again, that's along with the fact that just this stuff's really, really expensive. And so the more you can sort of combine diversify as it were the sort of more downside production you might you might have and this was a perhaps surprising move in that Qualcomm is a really large company and uh Broadcom was actually smaller but but the trend is an ongoing one yeah giants fighting giants it's uh it's as as aggregation and the the effects of the internet are playing out and the companies that are facing consumers like the brands that we recognize get bigger it's interesting to see how both the nature of the chip industry and the desire to be big in order to be able to to negotiate with these companies like there's consolidation on on that side as well it's also interesting the dynamics of how the design and the manufacturer have been pulled apart and how oftentimes now the design of these chips is being done increasingly in-house inside of companies like apple relying on arm reference chips and now they're being manufactured inside these facilities whereas previously it was there was integration across the design and manufacture much more so than there is right now with companies famously like intel yeah intel is is an exception here and i think what you see in industries is there tends to be sort of a cyclical nature to it where you you go from being large integrated players to breaking up into pieces and then sort of large integrated players but what happens is is that the the point of integration sort of shifts over Mm. time so you know when the chip industry was was in its heyday and when silicon valley sort of got its name in the in the 70s and 80s you know there was all these chip companies all over the place that they were all not just designing their own chips, but also manufacturing their own chips. And, and, and that was the point of integration was you had to actually you had, you had to do both. And then what happened was that got broken up where the manufacturing started being spread out and there were dedicated foundries. And then there was sort of design only companies. And then over time, the, the manufacturers had themselves consolidated to where today mm. there's only a couple of them. And basically, you know, every node change, every two node changes, like a foundry, like a foundry company falls out because it's just it's so unbelievably yeah. expensive to 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 go forward they just get, like TSMC spent something like 12 billion dollars a year on on capital costs like like it's just it's a huge amount it's of money crazy huh yeah it, it really is and 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 so and meanwhile and and what happened was as the manufacturing part of it has consolidated so again the original integration was you had companies that did both manufacturing and design that mm-hmm. broke apart and so you had ultra modularity but that's sort of not a sustainable state of affairs either and so what happened was the manufacturing side increasingly integrated and unsurprisingly the design side now is increasingly integrating at the same time and to your point you have you have more and more integration happening on the on the customer facing side where there's there's a you know a few dominant sort of players 
uh, you know, Samsung and Apple being 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 the two largest. Uh, but, but in China, there's you know the Huawei and and Xiaomi and, and the other ones as well. And, and it, it, it's sort of this push and pull that happens throughout the value chain, where one part responds to the other, and then some sort of tech technical innovation comes along and it breaks it apart again. But but you see this, you know, it, it's a pattern that you see in other industries, not just in tech. Yeah, right, and and also the the shift in the in the paradigm that the consumers and people are using, like the shift to mobile, is also causing the integration point to shift. Whereas desktop, it was outright performance per dollar. Now it's starting to be much more about performance per watt uh, because you're you're using these mobile devices, and therefore you want the integration between the hardware design and the software to be closer. And that's why the design starts to to move, and that's why these companies have gone for ARM reference designs as opposed to the paradigm that existed in the PC era, which was much more the design was closer to the manufacturing. Yeah, well, I mean, take take servers as another example. I mean, it, it used to be that, you know, back-end servers were integrated devices. Like HP would sell, they would create everything from the chip all the way up to, to, to the server or, or or Sun, you know, you'd have the entire, the, like the, they did, the operating system. Yeah. yeah, operating system all the way down to the chip. It was an entirely integrated device. And then what happened was, was... You had a you had a few things that happened, and they're all tied together. One is you had the rise of Linux, so you had a sort of purely modular sort of operating system that that ran on all sorts of chips and all sorts of places and could be modified to your heart's desire. And along with that, you had then the rise of x86 servers. In, in x86, even though these are super expensive chips, the ones that Intel puts for servers, they're dramatically cheaper than buying a Spark system, for example, from Sun, which is which is why Sun is kind of no longer an ongoing entity in these sorts mm. of things. And and you, so you had modularization happening at different parts, and the integration ended up being the entire like sort of server farm where, where Google builds out and Google is really a pioneer here builds out massive data centers and on one hand they're buying basically commodity x86 chips on one side using Linux on the other and putting their own integration in a different spot in the value chain that breaks apart the other former in- integrated spots in the value chain right but that still focuses more on the server farm and i think the interesting part about what we're talking about today is looking at it more from the perspective of mobile devices right right well and the reason why this so the reason this matters is you kind of reference the apple and, and arm thing is one thing that's happened in in mobile is apple to your point has increasingly integrated chip design all the way up through the operating system mm-hmm. and 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 their apis that they expose it's all it goes all the way down to the chip right and and so that is a point of integration in the value chain and specifically it's a point of integration and the premium part of of smartphones and this has had a lot of important sort of knock-on effects particularly on companies like samsung or and qualcomm and the reason is that normally uh qualcomm you know qualcomm's entire sort of modus operandi well we'll get into qualcomm in a moment but but their sort of chip making business the idea for them is they make sort of superior chips mm. and then they charge a premium for them and yes there are sort of like you know uh, competitors particularly in asia like a company like MediaTek or something like that that are doing low cost ones and are probably violating some ip but whatever they're they're, they're doing it anyway and the the idea is well yes we win on the high end with differentiation we 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 get a higher margin we don't get the whole market because we have low cost competitors but that's okay like it's a, it's a definitely a sustainable business model the the problem and the havoc that Apple has sort of wreaked on the entire smartphone ecosystem is that because Apple is so dominant on the high end that leaves a very sort of shrinking share of premium customers for 
a company like Qualcomm and a company like Samsung, for example, right? Yes, Samsung is still doing decently well with the S9, but they're the kind of the only, you know, they're the only Android manufacturer that really has gotten any sort of traction and success at the high end because the market's just too small because Apple Apple took most of it. And it follows that if the market's that small, then the suppliers of the companies in that market are going to be squeezed because they're just not as – on an absolute basis, there's just not enough customers there to sort of provide the differentiation. And then you end up Qualcomm basically shoved down to the lower end of the market. Mm-hmm. And the lower end of the market, they care about price. They don't care about features differentiation. So, so Qualcomm, even though they're set up to – compete on the high end, they have no choice but to sort of compete on the low end and end up in a very problematic sort of position. Which is also part of the reason why they have these legal troubles with Apple, right? Like Apple's increasingly started to to move away from their chips in terms of the CPUs that they're using, but Qualcomm modems, the, the, the devices that allow you to connect to the network, are still pretty much renowned for being the best you can get, but they've started to substitute it in for Intel, and then you end up with these patent disputes where Apple's basically said that they're not going to pay Qualcomm anymore until this is all resolved. Yeah, so I mentioned Qualcomm, the chip business. So the reality is that Qualcomm, uh, the the largest portion of their revenue comes from the chip business, and which makes sense. They're like selling things. Mm -hmm. But actually, the vast, vast majority of their profit comes from their licensing business. So Qualcomm is basically two companies in one. So company number one makes new chips, creates new IP. Company number two basically harvests royalties from that ip or over time and and so qualcomm for example uh is yes you're right they do do systems on a chip so i was kind of referring to a, a moment ago when it comes to like high-end smartphones mm-hmm. but their biggest moneymaker has always been like the modems in, in 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 cell phones and they have contributed meaningfully to this i mean qualcomm has been heavily involved in the creation of cellular technology for 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 a very long time now they you know they earned oh, their patent fees like fair and square like they mm-hmm. helped create these standards they create they were heavily involved in in all of them going through, whether it be Edge, whether it be CDMA in in, in the three G era. You know, one of the reasons there was two, there's two three G standards. One of them was Qualcomm's. The other one was uh, I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember whose. But European, wasn't it? I yeah, I can't it, I can't remember. It, it, it gets it, it gets. Uh, <laughs> these are the I've written about these a few times daily updates. These are the mm-hmm. ones that it, like it takes me like hours to write because I'm double checking every single yes. fact under them. And so we're on right. a podcast, so bear with us here. But the um. But then 4G, uh, Qualcomm again heavily involved, and and the 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 payoff is they they get all these. So there's, they get two sorts of payoffs. Payoff number one is they get sort of like Fran payouts, uh, fair and reasonable something or other. Which basically is the idea is if your patent is used in a standard, which basically means if anyone wants to build a product, they have no choice but to use your patent. The idea is y- you can get a fee, but it has to be like fair and reasonable and, and, and non discriminatory. Yeah, thank you. That's the rest of it. Right. And and the the point is that you should get paid for your work, but uh, you you can't exclude people or like cut special deals or things on those lines. And that's one type of patent that goes into these. The other type is like we create something that's not part of the standard, but it it is a genuine breakthrough. And if you want to use that, then then Qualcomm can negotiate whatever sort of rights and licenses they want. Mm. And the reality is that is that Qualcomm is – you know this this article maybe came across as as somewhat complimentary of Qualcomm, but they're also sort of rapacious 
uh, uh, when it comes to their licensing and rights fees. And, and they have all sorts of sketchy sort of behavior, whether it be incentivizing you through rebates and discounts to, to go with their things, which is they're being sued for both by the FTC and also by Apple. And they've been found guilty in South Korea. They've been found guilty in China. Um, and, and, and so like they're, they're a company that at a minimum skirts the very edge of like what is legal and what, what isn't legal as far as leveraging this, this stuff. They, they do things like, uh, they, they charge based a, a big part of the Apple dispute is Qualcomm charges royalties based on the final price of the phone, which means they're taking X percent of $700 for an iPhone, for example, or X percent of a thousand dollars for an iPhone 10. And Apple's like, that's totally ridiculous because your tech technologies are is not what is allowing us to charge a high price your technologies in the apples arguing we should be able to pay on a on a per item basis for example and then you know the deal is to say qualcomm is very much out to get their pound of flesh and that's where they make the vast majority of their money it's interesting because uh, uh they're definitely rapacious but they are rap- they are at least cognizant of what enables them to be rapacious they keep on investing in these standards they keep on building out the future standards and that enables those future cash flows to keep emerging part of the reason why i it's interesting that this might get stopped is like someone even potentially more rapacious is coming along and looking at this and saying let's just take what we can get out of it but I don't know that it's going to be worth taking those profits and reinvesting them in the standards that allow us to create the next thing, which will generate future cash flows. Yeah, it's interesting. Like Qualcomm has been under sort of activist investor pressure for for several years. And there's always been a question if should Qualcomm split up and basically should there be a licensing company and should there be a a sort of IP creation company, mm. for lack of a better, better, better term, which actually makes the chips and stuff like that. And I think there's there's a very strong argument to be made. I think it's actually probably pretty clear that Qualcomm is undervalued. Uh, like the whole is less than the sum of the parts as far as their, their valuation goes and part of that is because like one of the reasons they are limited in what they can charge is because they they have to be concerned about antitrust issues and they have to be concerned about the fact that they have these pat these uh standards essential patents and are they abusing their position and so you know there's a the, you know, if their chips were by themselves, they could charge what the market would bear. Could they actually charge more? Um, you know, it, it's an argument that could be made. But but I think the big argument is generally that this licensing part, they're not it's not valued properly because the chip facing part is facing these real headwinds, these sort of secular forces in the market that is making a standalone design company like Qualcomm less valuable than it was previously. And that that is sort of dragging down the still extremely valued sort of licensing part of the company. So this idea that Qualcomm might be better off if it could focus on the two different things, basically be split up, is been a longstanding sort of debate. And so Broadcom comes along, and the thing to understand about this deal, you know, Broadcom's like, oh, you know, you know, what do they want out of it? Like Broadcom's. Broadcom understood and saw the consolidation that we talked about that was coming in the chip industry, and they were they've been ahead of it every step of the way. So again, I, I keep saying Broadcom, but Broadcom is actually, as I mentioned, Broadcom was acquired by a company called called Avago. So uh, I, I I might be pronouncing it wrong, but Avago and Avago itself is basically uh, it's it's been built up from from all sorts of pieces. So it, Avago was actually a part of Hewlett Packard way back in the day when mm. Hewlett Packard spun off uh, Agilent Technologies. That's uh, that became Avago Technologies. 
technologies, and this was back in 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 the two thousands, I think. And since then, they've let's see, they've acquired a chip business from Infineon Technologies, the the acoustic wave business, which is sort of the part of the analog part of the chip making business. They acquired uh, Psy Optics, an optical chip component supplier. They acquired. Uh, uh, Amantis, a power electrics technology provider, they acquired LSI Corporation. They've they, they've they've been acquiring the uh, businesses for the, like the entire point of the company is is over the last decade has been to take advantage of this consolidation that's coming. Like they saw it coming. It's a very brilliant sort of company from a business perspective in that they saw how the industry was going, they saw the consolidation that was happening, and they've been ahead of it sort of every step of the way. Hmm. But so so what follows from that, though, is, you know, this is the, the entire point of this business is less about they, they realize the returns from sort of R&D were going to be less than the returns from scale, if that makes sense. And so they buying up the pieces and then and then, you, you know, you, you put that in the context of Qualcomm. Well, what are they going to do with the Qualcomm deal? They're going to take on like one hundred and six billion dollars in debt to make this one hundred and seventeen billion dollar purchase or something on those lines like that is a. That is a classic private equity deal. Like, how do mm. private equity deals work? The entire point, the, 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 a private equity deal is where you acquire a company that has huge amounts of cash flows, and you use those cash flows to pay off your debt, and you basically you get the company for free for all intents and purposes. And and, and in the meantime, you, all the parts that aren't contributing that cash flow, you 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 kind of chop them off or, or or whittle them down, and you come out with a company that is paid for itself for all intents and purposes is is theoretically much. Uh, leaner and well run, or if you want to put a more pessimistic tone on it, is been wrung out for all it's worth and then is ready to be tossed away. Yeah, I mean, you stop investing for the future, and at the point at which it starts to come home and bite you, you you get rid of it. And this is, I mean, this is a. It's like one of these instances where if you're if the time horizon of the people that own it uh, is different from the people that they're planning to sell it to, like they can make a lot of money over a certain time horizon and then pass it off. Like they are optimizing, like this is the bad, the dark side of private equity when they optimize for a very short time horizon and the point at which they have optimized for the time horizon, they pass it off. And then the people who buy it think, oh, the the cash flows are going to continue as they have, but because no investment has been made in in what's going to bring in the revenues for the future, they end up holding this thing that's withered and going to die because it has no future revenue engine. Right. And so you look at sort of the outline of this deal, and it's very hard to come to any conclusion other than, then frankly, Broadcom is like, I just complimented Broadcom. And if you think about it, what is the big picture? It kind of makes sense for Qualcomm. If the high end of the market, if they're increasingly sort of shut off from it, then like there is a absolute logical case to be made that the best way to maximize shareholder value such as it is is to is to really emphasize this licensing revenue to sort of reap its full benefits and to stop trying to you know push the rock uphill as it were right and but i guess the 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 counter i would have is maximize shareholder value over what time horizon and yes the the chip side of the business is not doing as well as it as it did before the likes of apple came into uh, the business it came into the business starting to build their own chips it was it was 
easy for them to make the decision to build the chips when everyone was buying the chips and also licensing from their pa- their patents but the patents are flowing from the chip business like the chip business the expertise in actually building the hardware and figuring out how to build the next generation of hardware is what enables them to create the patents that are now so valuable and yeah the chip business is not doing as well as it as it has been in the past, but if they stop investing in that, the flow-on effects further down the line will be less of the standard setting, less of the patents that flow on from the hard part of creating the chips. That's exactly right. And to be clear, we're kind of conflating talk about uh, the system on a chip uh, chips and the modem chips and the all the other sort of chips that Qualcomm makes. So forgive us for not being super precise on this. I think that your broader takeaway is exactly right. This though is sort of the rub, and, and you know that I was kind of getting at in this article. You're right that uh, you know the time frame matters, but there's also sort of the time value of money in mm-hmm. that if the re- the immediate return is so astronomically greater mm-hmm. than what you see in the long run, sometimes it does make sense to sort of cut off the future be- and, and let that money be invested elsewhere, wherever it might be, by, 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 by your investors. And again, I'm not saying this is the right thing to do. I'm just saying there is an argument to be made that, you know, to, to, we, and I think we've talked about this previously. There's a presumption that companies should live forever, and and that's not necessarily always the case. Sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, comp- companies should. And again, I'm not saying that applies to Qualcomm. I'm I'm just being devil's advocate here. This, you know, sometimes a company, the best thing they can do is sort of maximize the returns on what they have and allow that money to go out and be invested elsewhere. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is interesting. There's there's a, a paper that I'd really like to link to. Um, in this podcast by, um, it was, it's written by Boeing and it basically goes into the dangers of outsourcing and how uh, in a quest to maximize these financial metrics, in this case, return on net assets, which is a, a basis on which the private equity companies are investing and a, 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 like a, the financial basis on which a lot of these strategies are determined. What you end up doing is, um, cutting off the future of the organization. And it looks very, very attractive in the short run for all the reasons we've just described. But it goes into detail on how McDonnell Douglas did something very similar uh, in terms of like, oh, each of these decisions looks attractive, but if you, it's driven by this kind of short termism. And if you look at it over a longer time horizon, what ends up happening is you're eliminating the company's future. Now, your point about should companies live forever? completely granted it's it's a reasonable debate but like this notion that you need to keep in mind the time horizon on which you're optimizing explains how reasonable people can look at the same thing and reach very very different conclusions right absolutely and, and to be clear i agree with you i mean and and I, this gets into the sort of national security angle the national security angle here i think a lot of people are missing is not that uh you know the it's a foreign it's a foreign company per se mm-hmm. there are some sort of hints that there are some classified issues about uh you know broadcom's connections to foreign entities or something along the lines mm-hmm. i mean so i mean who knows what those are they're classified so kind of identity we don't but i think the the bigger issue that is not classified but is is still you know straightforward is that Qualcomm's 
heavy involvement. And yes, it ends up being a sort of like tax on companies like Apple or whatever that, that these patents that they acquire. But at the end of the day, Qualcomm is a U.S. company governed by U.S. laws and regulations that, you know, the U.S. government has access to for, for better or worse that is heavily involved in creating standards for the future like 5G is currently be created currently, 6G in the future, whatever goes forward, and that it is to the U.S.'s advantage that a U.S. company be heavily involved in that. And this, and the point here is not, again, it doesn't matter that Broadcom promised to become a U.S. company, to re-domicile in the U.S. The, the, the point is the implication of their plan of their business model for Qualcomm, which whether they whatever they say or not, you just look at the amount of debt they're taking on. It's, and it's pretty obvious what they're what they want to do with it mm. is that the in the long run, Qualcomm's involvement in these standard setting bodies by implication has to decrease because they won't be spending enough money on R&D. And this, this is, I mean, if Qualcomm backs off, the folks that are going to step up and take the plate are going to be the the Chinese. To it, Huawei, China Telecom, ZTE, they're going to be much more heavily involved. Now they're in, they're incentivized to do so from a financial perspective. These that getting your licenses as the basis of these standards obviously have a very big financial upside. But these are also organizations that the U.S. government for some time and uh, have have come out and said, we don't trust these devices on US cell networks because we're not really sure about the ties that the, these organizations have to the Chinese government and whether there might be backdoors or other vulnerabilities intentionally built into them. And if those folks are setting the standards, then the possibility for that to happen only increases dramatically. This is where it's useful to sort of draw the line between analysis and sort of like and mm. like point of view or opinion or whatever you or whatever you want to call it, the the you know when I'm writing here about national security and, and whether it's justified from the U.S. perspective, it, oh, does China have its own national security mm-hmm. concerns? Absolutely. Is it in China's interest that it be fairly represented in standardizing bodies? Of course. Right. Has China been terribly underrepresented and basically had technology imposed on it by the West? One hundred percent. Like there's a point where that that's a separate. Debate. Debate and argument, and frankly, I you know I'm quite sympathetic to the Chinese point of view that hey, we're the largest market in the world, and and we we should get a fair say in how this stuff goes down. That that the point though is the U.S. from a from a sort of national security perspective doesn't care, right? Like mm. at the end of the day, this is like real politic. Like you, it, it is what. How is this stuff decided? The U.S. is attempting, wants to continue to leverage its place as sort of the the, the top of the heap when it comes to technology. China is challenging them. Again, And if it were fair, China would actually have, you know, quote unquote fair. China would have far more representation Mm -hmm. on these standardized devices than they do. I think for 5G, Chinese companies combined have like 10% of the patents that are in the 5G standard to date. Again, the standard's not finished. And that that includes Huawei, includes ZTE, includes all of them. Uh, Meanwhile, Qualcomm by itself has like 14%. And in the U.S., you know, if you take all the U.S. companies, it is much higher than that. So, like, it's already pretty unfair. Yeah. But that's that's the separate that's a separate question. Then this is why this analysis it's looking at from the U.S. perspective, which entails the U.S. It's not the U.S. isn't looking to be fair. The U.S. is looking to maximize its own sort of position in the world. 
Absolutely. And I, I am very sympathetic to this idea that it's, uh, that the, the dominant, the existing dominant player is forcing this onto another country. The flip side to it, though, is like most of the countries that have contributed a majority of, of these, uh, of the licensing have been liberal democracies, or at least, uh, for the most part, hold out to be liberal democracies. And what when it gets a little bit scarier when you have organizations that are operating and domiciled inside of countries that don't subscribe to a liberal democracy point of view, either exporting this equipment or uh, setting the standards. And I, that's where it feels a little bit different than the bully imposing it on someone else. There's this other aspect of it, which is you don't understand all the machinations of what's going on and what, what the incentives are, are because it's not purely driven from a, uh, a market uh, a market perspective like it's not just driven you don't understand whether it's just being driven by money and the desire to make profit there are other things that are factoring into the decisions and that's what makes it a little bit scarier to me right and this is sort of the this though you know the the, the pushback inevitable pushback is goes back to sort of the the Snowden revelations for example mm. that the u.s was you know had back rooms in 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 mm. in telecom companies or ISPs or whatever it might be and and you know this is why the debate is i think far more nuanced and complex than either side will admit i mean yep. the us does the us have a legitimate reason to want to tap into some communications it does and i think to argue that the us should never ever do it in the very idea that they ever would is is it's naive right i mean at the end of the day the, the the role of government, even the most sort of libertarian view of government, is that it provides for the national defense. You know what I mean? And like, so there's an aspect there where it's, it's legitimate. On the other hand, there's certainly the issues of privacy, just kind of generally, but there's also a a backdoor, no pun intended, sort of national security angle, which is it makes it a lot harder to make the argument that you just made. Mm. You, you know what I mean? Where there there is some sort of like. The public didn't know about these sort of backdoor accesses to their communications that the government turned out to actually be doing. It's like, well, oh, you're so you're telling me that one side is open and transparent and the other side isn't. Mm. Hmm, what about that? Again, I'm not necessarily saying that that's my position per se, but it, you know, the whole thing is, I think, a lot more gray on both sides than than it matters. But at the end of the day, like at the end of the day, is the reality is is both countries and and both societies are. You know, there's a, is a zero sum sort of aspect to this. Mm, mm -hmm. I mean, we we started off with you and your very principled approach to uh, daylight saving time, which I very much appreciate, and that is exactly the rationale for the principled approach around things like what Snowden has done. Is like if one country starts doing this, it loses the moral high ground around topics like this, and it, like your ability to make arguments around profit maximizing and whether people should trust them starts to go out the door. Now, I also get that the world is gray and there's a real politic of the fact that uh, you need to monitor some communications. But I, I mean, you, you certainly have a trade-off and the extent to which it was done inside of the NSA, this is where it starts to come back and haunt the US because it can't make these principled arguments anywhere near the same extent that it otherwise would be able to. Right, and again, I, I I wasn't staking out a position on it. Mm. I was just pointing out that the, it is it is not like it's it, this stuff is isn't black and white. But the way that's the thing with standards, though, it ends up playing out as being black and white. And and so I think my perspective actually on this deal is I think the Trump administration was exactly right uh, in in this case. The Qualcomm is an essential counterweight 
to sort of the, these these Chinese companies. And again, who their their ownership structure is very opaque. They they sprung out of the Chinese army. You don't you, your whole point about it's not a liberal democracy. Certainly, they are very good at at monitoring and tracking traffic. And like any mm. large country, of course, they're spying. Like I'm not mad at China for for spying. Just as I I'm not mad at the U.S. At the U.S. like that's what that's what governments do you know what i mean like there's an aspect here like this isn't a moral debate it's sort of just a reality debate like like this is what countries do and are big telecom providers going to be bound up in that by definition yes and is the u.s you know right to worry about perhaps their their most important player you know being increasingly shut out i i i think so yeah, I, I mean, I would tend to agree with that. And it's it's funny, like on the back of what happened with the tariffs on aluminium or aluminum for our American listeners and steel, I, I'm like, I, like that. Johnny, I have on the podcast. <laughs> right. Like, I, I think that's bad. I'm a big believer in free trade for all the reasons we've talked about. But this is an instance where actually denying it, uh, like, I, I agree with you. It, it makes total sense. But there's another question that I have for you, uh, and it relates to this broader point of of liberal democracy and capitalism versus the, the way the Chinese are thinking about this investment, which is if this if Broadcom had not been blocked and had taken a taken a position in Qualcomm, the likes of which we discussed, it seems that the way that they would run the company would be to maximize. Uh, like at least on a shorter term time horizon, maximize profits and stop investing in the chip business, which would prevent the, the, the IP being developed in order to get money from the licenses and the patents further down the line. But the Chinese seem to be having a different approach, which is like maximizing investment. Like that, they seem to be taking a longer term approach. And I find it fascinating that. Uh, that there's something going on inside of capitalism, inside of liberal democracies, where we are seeing uh, an a, 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 like to it a communist country making these long-term investments in things that w- that will have long-term returns and the capitalist countries like the si- the way the system's playing out right now kind of taking the more short-term approach it's important not to overstate it i mean qualcomm again has more of the patents in 5g than than all the chinese companies combined mm-hmm. so so it's not like it's, it's like all chinese and we're just trying to hold on to our to our sliver here yep. um although you know and and the u.s still is still granted the most patents on a sort of like a global basis than any other country. Japan is actually second. Uh, China is third. ZTE and Huawei are absolutely coming along very strong, but there's an aspect to it where, of course, they should be coming on strong. China is the largest country in the world. Mm. It is relative for it is relatively speaking quite rich and it's getting it is getting richer. And it's it's you know, in some respects, there's an absolute case where China is just taking where it should be in the world. It was an aberration that China was such a minuscule share. And frankly, if you went by market size and went by importance in telecommunications and went through the potential, I mean, China, by virtue of it being so many people, mm-hmm. being so dense, which lends itself to all these wireless technologies being far more useful and effective. I mean, your, your cellular coverage, I experienced this in Taiwan, right? Uh, like, I never have a problem with cellular coverage. 
coverage. Why? Because it's so dense. It's just so built out. The return on investment from building out infrastructure is so great because of the density that you end up getting fantastic coverage basically everywhere you are. Whereas the U.S., because it's so spread out and the returns are so much more spread out just by virtue of the sheer size of the place and the mm-hmm. population of the U.S. relative to size is actually quite low, that that you, you seller coverage is way worse in the U.S. Again, it's not an issue of investment or non-investment. It's it, it's just it's it's physical factors that go into it. So number one, I would just sort of push back and say a big part of this is is actually the market returning to a state of normalcy compared to where it was not previously. And I, I mean, I think from an absolute perspective, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm in complete agreement. And I think that that China is going to rise up and it is going to parallel and it is going to surpass the United States. I guess it's this is slightly aside from the question I had, which is like, had this merger? Yeah, don't worry. I have I have an answer. For, oh, I still okay. have an answer for right. that one too. Got it. Uh, okay. So, so I think this was sort of the conclusion of the article, though. I, the problem is that I think the the market is warped, and it's warped mm. by government policy, specifically when it comes to patents. And the, if you think about Qualcomm, if Qualcomm really is this sort of two-headed company and one side has become so much more potentially profitable than the other that it almost makes sense to cut off the other's head, the, the, wh- why is that side so, 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 so profitable? It's profitable because it is full of government-granted monopolies. Monopolies are really, really valuable. And it turns out if you have a whole ton of monopolies, your probably best option is just to maximize that. And and if if Qualcomm did not have such a treasure chest of patents, the only way for the company to make money going forward would be to invest ever more in innovation. And so what's happening is the entire point of patents is supposed to be to spur innovation. In the case of a company like Qualcomm, patents are actually making it so your incentives are to not innovate. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a great point. There are a bunch of problems with patents, and it's it's only getting worse. Like like being able to patent math, for example, and the extent algorithms and the extent to which that becomes absolutely uh, critical in the information economy. The the difficulty with which you can tell whether you're infringing on a patent, which is like one of the basis of uh, of like property rights, like you put up a white picket fence and I can tell what's yours and you can tell what's mine and we're able to go about our business. The idea that property is is non-replicable. I have a piece of property and you have a piece of property, whereas ideas can be re- replicated on a uh, like a, a marginal basis for zero. And it's it's one of these things where I feel like we've dragged the old paradigm forward. And we've talked about this before. I, I tend to agree. I, I think there's also another point, which is we talked about how uh, patents are coming up strong from the Chinese, from America's traditionally being the strongest proponent of intellectual property worldwide. And that's primarily because uh, so much of it's uh, historically been developed in the United States, and therefore it's been all the royalties flowing in. What's going to be interesting to see as China starts to ascend is how much more of the IP is generated over there. And it'll be interesting to watch whether that inflow to the United States continues or whether it actually starts to be the case that, uh, particularly with this long-term time horizon that it feels like the Chinese have, that America is going to be paying more royalties to China. It's a really interesting point. But I think I just want to double down on the on on the patent issue for a moment. Mm. And specifically, 
I think a huge problem and a hole in the current in the ever going debate on patents is it it, it doesn't go back to first principles. And what I mean is, there's lots of debates: should this apply here? Should it not apply here? Is there is there patent hunting? Should we go to different jurisdictions? All the, like we're all stuck in the details. And what we actually need, the conversation we actually need about patents, is to go back to first principles. And first principles are everyone starts with the presumption that patents exist, and then they have all sorts mm. of debates beyond that, mm-hmm. right? But you have to go back to why do patents exist and you have to start with the assumption that not that it they just exist but that they are a bad thing patents are inherently a bad thing why because they are a government granted monopoly they are fundamentally distortive of the market and then you go through well why why are patents in the constitution right why are they deemed so important it's not just a law they're actually in the constitution the reason is the need to spur innovation and the the idea was that well if you make something you ought to be able to earn a profit from it. And if someone comes along and can just make copy what you did indefinitely, the problem is no one's going to want to actually make new things. So, so this is the key thing that is critical to remember about patents. Number one, they are inherently a bad thing. Number two, the trade-off was deemed worth it because the payout in innovation was was worth the, the, the bad thing of distorting the market. And if you don't, so that's critical. Like one, they're bad. Two, the bad is worth it because you get this other good thing out of it. Right. But uh, like when that was created, the assumptions that we were operating on and under were a little bit different than the assumptions in the environment that we're operating in right now. Right. And, and, and honestly, that argument, I still, I, I mean, I, I still tend to, again, I, I'm not a pharmaceutical expert, but by and large, I get like the pattern in pharmaceuticals, for example, mm. right? Unbelievably expensive to develop. Again, we could have a separate debate about the regulation around testing, all sort of stuff, mm. if it's appropriate. But by and large, you know, super expensive to develop. You only have a few years to, to, to once it's developed, you can just, figure out the chemistry and make your own right uh, um or well there's one there's one other thing like the chemical compounds are easy to define so it's easy to set the boundaries it's much harder to set the boundaries for so many other things because they're defined in language and language is by definition imprecise that's what makes what you just talked about like the the pharmaceutical industry the one area where it really it really might make sense to to be different around how you think about patents it's because like going back to first principles, it's easy to put a boundary around pharmaceutical compounds as opposed to ideas that are defined in language where you have lawyers interpreting things and you end up in court trying to fight it all out. That's a great point. And that actually, I really like that because that, that lets me think about uh, the future and how we get there. But I think there's one, just one other really important point to think about in terms of technology patents. And that is, remember, when we go back to first principles, patents are bad. The badness is worth it because we want to spur innovation. Mm. The issue is that the nature of technology inherently spurs innovation. And it inherently spurs innovation for two reasons. Number one that we talked about last week is the returns to fixed costs are astronomical. Because the, mm-hmm. the duplication, particularly in terms of software, is effectively free, that it is worth it. And all these venture-backed companies, the entire point yeah. of their business model is to spend a huge amount of money up front and then to, and then to earn it back by, by spreading it far and wide. And what that means is there there is a huge spur, there is a huge amount of incentive to invest, 
to 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 invest in innovation because the payoffs are potentially enormous. And you add that to the fact that the vast majority of technology products have some sort of network effect. There would that mm. network effect be a, a scale effect in production, or would it be the number of customers using it? Would it be suppliers? Would it be building two sided markets? Would it be aggregators? Whatever it might be, would it be being a part of a standards body where it, like, like 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 Qualcomm is? There are these. You have this combination of network effects that accrue usually to the earlier players, and you have this huge return to scale that comes from leveraging huge amounts of fixed costs. The point is the spur to innovation when it comes to technology is incredibly massive. So the point is if we don't need that part – why are we preserving the crappy part of patents, which is that they totally distort the market? Like the the if you go back to first principles of patents, you realize that from a philosophical perspective, patents make zero sense of technology. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, there. Are, this is just one of these many examples where the assumption is set in the previous paradigm, and we were like when the constitution was created, the paradigm of like zero marginal cost to distribution right. and the ability to just thing? send something off to to China to get it manufactured very quickly, or the idea of creating software, like it was so far away. And the problem is, it's being dragged forward. And again, like an, another rationale for this being bad is like thinking about it from the perspective of uh, rather than like the people who are making the decisions around whether this is a good thing or not are so heavily influenced by the incumbents who have all the patents that want this system to continue yeah like all regulation yeah patents are regulation and it lends itself to regulatory capture exactly and and that's exactly what's happening like if if like if you're making the amount of money that qualcomm is from patents, how much are you going to spend to ensure that this is, uh, this is, this legacy is continued and this is enforced worldwide and so on and so forth? Like you're going to spend a lot of money and that, like you said, regulatory capture. And that money's going to pay off like it just did yesterday. I mean, at the yeah. end of the day, I just said the Trump admission did the right thing. They did the right thing under the context of the current patent system. And Qualcomm's been lobbying up a storm to to block this deal. And you think, like, this is a classic example. I mean, where is management wants to preserve what they do and, and who they are in the case of Qualcomm. Are they acting in the best interest of shareholders? Uh, probably not. And that shareholder vote was going to be very close. It, it, it seems likely Broadcom was probably going to win because from a pure sort of return perspective, they, they're probably right. And it's almost like the U.S. is fortunate that the Qualcomm managers are not acting in, in the uh, in the vestiges, arguably acting in the vestiges of shareholders because they, they, they have this legacy and this idea of what Qualcomm is and they're holding to it. And that actually ends up being a good thing for the U.S., but it's so utterly warped and distorted. And you go back, where is that? You ask the question, why is that happening in a market economy? Because we're not dealing with markets. We're dealing with warped and distorted monopolies that are imposed by government regulation. Yeah, I mean, I, I concur with you on patents. I do still think that there is an uh, there is an issue here where uh, people are taking a short term time horizon, and if they were thinking about it longer, that it might actually it might actually the consensus might actually form around the decision that that has effectively come down or the decision. No, no, no. think through it, James. Think through it, James. If if Qualcomm did not have this huge revenue stream from licensing from 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 patents that are that are way too broad and and, and given out way too freely, like mm. the company would be investing in future standards, because like, it's the only reason the company would have a reason to exist. And they would still be incentivized to do so because of all the returns that you get from doing it. Now, again, I, I'm running myself into a little bit of a corner in that those are those returns are coming from patents. I'm not saying like we have to necessarily erase the whole thing. Obviously, there's some sort of 
particularly around standards and things like that, there's some sort of middle ground. My goal here, though, is to shake people out of the presumption that the way the system is is the way the system is, and let's make decisions inside that system. And I, I would argue you were just doing the same thing. Oh, no, quite the contrary. Like, I'm with you 100% on patents. What I am concerned about is that the, like, there are, there are two, um, I guess my argument is that there are two uh, what perspectives that are happening here. One is from patents, which are which are causing all the the them to be, the management to behave in a certain way, and that are having all the effects that we just talked about. But there is a separate countervailing force that I don't think is is a positive one, which is causing people to look at things in too short term a time horizon, and that is why Broadcom would come along and would want to milk things and then sell it off, as opposed to thinking about investing in the future had patent let's assume patents don't change they continue instead of continuing to invest and build that patent portfolio up and get all the returns that accrue from that they would actually not flip the business they would continue to invest in that way I, I hear your point. I know this is something you're very passionate about, but I really think you need a better example than this case. Because to, to me, this is such a, a, an, an obvious, like, why would they do that? If there were no patents, Broadcom wouldn't be doing this deal. I mean, it's so, I mean, there's an aspect of if you, what, again, why should companies live forever? I mean, there's a lot of companies that arguably, you know, should milk their cash cow and return money. Like, I'm not necessarily inherently opposed to like returning money to shareholders, for example, whether it be share buybacks or dividends or whatever it might be. Because mm-hmm. ideally, that money is then you know money's fungible, right? It's not like it goes in one place and it can never be used somewhere else. That that's money flows to venture capital, it flows to other investments, it flows in different places, and and that's a good thing. I mean, we we've had this this discussion about disruption. I, I, how much money has been wasted by corporations pursuing? A, a new paradigm that they're fundamentally unable to to compete in. I mean, Microsoft has wasted billions and billions and billions more dollars than has ever been invested in, in, in VC over the same time period, for example. I mean, again, to Microsoft's credit, they're in a good place now, but that good place, it, the whole reason I, I, I wrote that they should go to this place is because it fit the sort of company that they were. It, all the money that they spent in, in all these other areas, flushing down the toilet for all intents and purposes. Everything you've said in terms of pushback is completely fair. I agree. You don't want you don't want incumbents to just hang on, and the extent to which patents play into that, it, I think, is a problem. Like, uh, you you don't want regulatory capture. Like, an economy is healthy when you're getting disruptors coming along, and the rate of turnover is happening faster and faster and faster. At the same time, I would start to make the observation. I mean, we said it earlier, like there is a dark side to private equity and there's a good side. And like that, 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 like part of that dark side is when the time horizons get compressed to something that's artificial. And it's, it's the balance between finding the, 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 like where a company is doomed and it shouldn't invest and then maybe actually taking, like selling it, running it into the ground, so to speak, is the right call. But I think you and I would both agree that that's not true, at least in every instance. Like there are instances where private equity companies have come along and taken companies with promising futures and have diverted them down this path because from a financial engineering perspective, it looks very attractive. Uh, and then the, the company gets handed off. The, the futures disappeared. There's no, there's no future because there's been no investment. Like I agree there are instances like what you said when that's what should be done. 
I have an intuition and I don't have solid proof that it's happening more often than it should. And I also have intuition that it feels like the way that the Chinese are approaching this uh, is is taking a longer term, more strategic point of view. And my in, again, just basing it on intuition, my that makes me concerned because like so much of the disruptive innovation that is happening on a long term time horizon has taken root in the US. And it's like this, I think, threatens it and it might allow it to take place more often in China. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you haven't convinced me. And uh, to me, the the more powerful argument from my perspective, not saying for you, the more powerful argument against mm. sort of, you know, shumper destruction, as it were, and sort of the acceleration pace of disruption and private equity coming in and, and, and you know, arguably pushing a firm to where it should be and winning it dry and then leaving it leaving it to rot because that firm was obsolete or, or going to be disrupted or whatever it might be is the societal impacts. The fact that, you know, companies are institutions that, you know, taking a factory out from a town destroys it. You know, taking a people mm. having to find new jobs is very societally destructive. And there, and I also buy that there are often national security angles. Like there, there, you know, I'm a absolute free trader as well, but you know, I mean, in this case, I, I just articulated why I actually think it was the right move. The the idea that um, you know, and I certainly think that there are situations where managers do tend to worry about sort of the short term stock movement because it's tied to their incentive mm. compensation and whatnot. But I think you could probably come up with plenty of examples where managers don't do what's right because they're tied to. Being being kings, you know, being queens and being the heads heads of the company and, and getting bigger and making acquisitions and and staying relevant and whatever it yeah. might be. And so I I'm I share concern and skepticism about like pure unalloyed sort of capitalism. But my concerns are more about the 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 people that are left behind and that are hurt along the way, as opposed to that we're somehow not maximizing. Our, our our forward progress yeah i mean i i i share that um and obviously i think you want to cushion that impact as much as possible but i feel like that's a, a role better suited to government for reasons we've talked about i think both of those things that you just talked about are bad like when you have uh, managers or the financial markets too focused on uh the short term and when you have managers focused on like building fiefdoms. I don't think that's a good thing either. I think you want to get rid of that fiefdom building type approach because ultimately that's value destructive. And you, I, I think I would argue that you want to get rid of the short-term capital approach because that's also value destructive. And somehow I would like to see the market start to shift to think about things in a longer term time horizon. And I actually think if you were able to institute something like that, it would eliminate uh, definitely the the first one and maybe some aspects of the second one because people would internalize oh i can't just kingdom build and like make things look good and then leave and then hand it on to the next person to deal with like my compensation is going to be tied to how the, the company does over a longer term time horizon well i i, I think uh, by definition we could argue this for literally hours mm, because I, I think we have a we just have a, a there's a you know probably a bit of a fundamental different view on this uh which which is fine i think we've talked about before i'm sure we'll talk about it again i, I again i i think your argument falls up i think your argument to layer on a different viewpoint in this specific case and i think you you kind of broadly agree with me kind of falls apart if you were to take away the other sort of distortive layer like i i think 
Qualcomm would invest for the long run and their investors would cheer them on doing so if they didn't have this oversized monstrosity attached to them on the hip, which is their licensing business. And that licensing business from whence yeah. it flows is, is, is this distortive layer. And so it, we can debate the long term, short term issue, I think, again, but it, it just, I would just, the conclusion I would draw, and I would hope you agree with me, is this might not be the best example to make your case because of this distortive effect. Yeah, I mean, I tend, to, I tend to agree. I guess I think there are two. I think the counter, and I won't, I don't want to loop it one more time, but the counter would be you've got managers doing a longer term thing because of patents and because of king making. I think if you were able to get people, like I agree with you, let's get rid of patents, and that might immediately say. Well, uh, like we don't have it's this notion that there are two distortive effects going on because I agree with what you just said. And it's the patents causing the long term focus and the king making approach of management and versus the short term nature of the markets. And like they're pulling things in different ways. Yeah, again, I think the other we've talked about this before. I think the other sort of thing that your viewpoint has to deal with is why are companies like Amazon value so high? Why are companies like, like that that do do promise long run returns. Why mm-hmm. do people invest so much money in venture capital? Why are people willing to lose lots of money on their investments? These are all long term investments. I, I I don't see it's. I have a hard time pointing to like CPG companies are reducing their R and D. Well, I think they're reducing their R and D because their business model is broken. Like retail companies are reducing their, like like where where is this actual reduction in long term spending happening? Yeah. There's a lot of you could certainly make the case. Again, we don't have the data in front of us. We're kind of arguing in, in theoreticals. You could make the case. It's actually a very rational response to a changing secular environment, and frankly, that's the case you you could you could kind of make make, make with Qualcomm, and and that gets into a whole you know then that just reopens the entire the entire. Arc. I mean, it does. I, I think the 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 quick response is these companies have founders that have managed to set expectations with the market from the get go that these are going to be longer term investments, and they have a different set of shareholders than the traditional S and P five hundred type organization. And tech companies seem to be able to pull this off better, as well as these companies that have very different management structures that enable it. But yeah, I I hear your point. It's certainly not a universal thing. And it it makes me happy that there are organizations like Amazon that are able to take this long-term time horizon because they're doing some of the great stuff that we're seeing in capitalism right now. Okay, well, we'll, we'll have to leave that be. Otherwise, uh, we, we could, I'm, I'm sure we could go on for, for two more hours. Yes. Um, yes. but, in the, but we would not have time then to thank WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. As they do every week, our, again, go to WordPress.com slash Exponent to get 15% off your order. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. Oh, uh, yep. Bye bye.